You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, Psalm 98 uh, is where we will be today. Uh, Psalm 98 is on page 500 of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, if you're using one of those. This Advent, uh, if you've been with us, we have been doing a little bit of a different series for us that we're calling Christ of the Carols. Uh, And each Sunday, we're looking at a particular Christmas carol. Uh, We're looking at the biblical truths that that carol comes from. And then we're considering how a, a deeper knowledge of these things that we sing, these truths that we sing in these songs will actually grow our appreciation, will grow our wonder, will, will grow us as worshipers as we consider this, this marvelous mystery of Jesus' incarnation. And so with this third Advent candle representing joy, as you heard Keith and Charlene share a little earlier, uh, this morning we're considering the hymn, Joy to the World. Joy to the World. Uh, joy to the World was written 300 years ago. It was written in the year 1719 by Isaac Watts. And after the past couple weeks, you probably started to think like maybe all the good Christmas hymns were written by Charles Wesley because the last two we've looked at were both written by Charles Wesley. There are other good hymn writers of Christmas hymns. Isaac Watts is one of them. Uh, He actually published more than 800 hymns over the course of his life. This is, I think, his most famous of those. And so let me start by just reading uh, the words of this song. Uh, You have an insert in your bulletin that on one side has the lyrics to Joy to the World, so you can follow along with me there. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, Far as, far as, the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders of his love. Familiar song? Yes? A little bit? We'll sing it together at the end of our worship service this morning. Isaac Watts uh, was both a pastor and a hymn writer. Uh, Many of his hymns were actually written specifically to be sung as a response to a sermon that he was preparing. And so a little trip to respond to various psalms as he was preaching through psalms. And unlike the last couple Christmas carols that we've been exploring— which have really been a compilation of a number of different passages and texts from the Bible, Joy to the World is really Isaac Watts' paraphrase of one text, just one. And that text is Psalm 98. 
So we're going to read Psalm 98 together, and then we'll spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking that a little bit and talking through it. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Psalm 98. It's on page 500 in those black hardcover Bibles. A Psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us this morning. God of love and power, you are are revealed to us in your word, in accounts of prophecy and fulfillment that direct our attention and our hearts to Jesus Christ. Guide us now as we hear your word proclaimed that we may open our hearts to him, that we may yearn for his coming in glory, and that we may serve him with joy. We pray this in his name. Amen. So three things uh, for us to consider together this morning. What is joy? Who should have joy and why? And how do we get joy? What is joy? Who should have it and why? And how do we get it? So first, what is joy? What is joy? Here's a really big philosophical question for you. I know you're ready for it on this Sunday morning. Does a fulfilling, satisfying life come by relentlessly pursuing joy or by ceasing to pursue joy altogether? What's the pathway to a satisfying, fulfilling life? Throughout history, humanity has been divided on this question. So a couple millennia ago, there were the hedonists who pursued joy, who pursued pleasure as if it was the whole point of life. There were also Stoics, who said that the most satisfying life actually comes by giving that up and just by accepting and receiving whatever comes your way. And then there were people like the Epicureans who tried to find some kind of midpoint between those two extremes. Pursue modest pleasures, pursue some happiness, maybe not all happiness, but some. And these theories are alive and well today. That's true in different religions, different worldviews, different philosophies of life. And for us, in our culture, whether it's a a sports team or a friendship or a relationship with a significant other or your career, as Tim Keller once put it, and I'm paraphrasing him here, our hearts are a big vacuum pump that has an enormous amount of sucking power. It fixes itself on something and says, this will really make me happy. And then, of course, it does not at all. And so after enough failed attempts of of directing that sucking power toward different things and then it not working, some of us decide the only way forward is to stop pursuing joy altogether, uh, to detach and to not invest ourselves in anything at the heart level. 
However, and some of you know this really well from your own life and your own experience, there's a deep emptiness that comes if you follow through on that detachment. Why is that? Because in detaching, you're attempting to shut down, you're attempting to cut off something of what it actually means to be human. The wisdom of God, as revealed in Scripture, has long offered a better way. And it offers us a better way because it reframes the whole paradigm. See, in other worldviews and philosophies, joy is the product of circumstances. And you heard Shay speak to that some this morning as she was beginning our service and inviting us into worship and liturgy. Joy is the product of circumstances in other worldviews. We chase the good circumstances. We try to take hold of those. We try to detach ourselves and distance ourselves from the bad ones. But in the wisdom of God, joy is not a product of circumstances at all. Instead, it's a product of identity and truth. Identity and truth. So identity, it's a product of first and foremost who God is and then who we are in light of that. And it's a product of truth, and by that I mean specifically the story of the world as narrated by the God of heaven and earth himself. And so the Lexham Bible Dictionary defines joy like this. It says, closely related to gladness and happiness, joy is more a state of being than an emotion. It's tied to something deeper than emotions. You hear that? It's a result of choice uh, to believe in and to live in light of the truth. The dictionary goes on to say, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is expected of Christians because it is the natural result of having received salvation. The joy comes on account of what Christ has done, irrelevant of whatever other circumstances are happening in one's life. Do you hear how that understanding of joy is just fundamentally different? Fundamentally different. God reigns. He's on his throne ruling over all that was, all that is, all that is to come. And his story is the story of redemption, of salvation ultimately through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in terms of identity, that makes us originally beloved image bearers, corrupted by sin, but, but redeemed by the work of Christ. And in that identity then, and in that truth of the, the, the real story of the world, whatever circumstances we face, God's people can be, God's people are meant to be a joyful people. And that's what Psalm 98, and that's what the hymn Joy to the World are all about. They celebrate the extraordinary salvation of God. They celebrate the marvelous things, as Psalm 98 puts it, that God has done, and what that means for us, what that means for all of creation. But let's pause just for a moment. It's right for us to differentiate between joy and happiness. It's right for us to differentiate between those two things. If you've, if you've been a Christian for a little while, if you've ever been in a church service or heard a pastor preach a sermon about joy, you've probably heard something like this. What I'm saying to you this morning is I'm sure maybe not new to you. That happiness is about emotions. Joy is about identity. Uh, that happiness is about Circumstances, it's rooted in that. Joy is rooted more deeply in, our, in the truth, not just circumstances. Yes to that distinction, but don't overdo it. 
Don't overdo it. Here's what I mean. Don't let that distinction excuse you from being a person who expresses incredible happiness and incredible gladness. And in fact, because joy is deeper than circumstances for the Christian, it should work its way out into happiness and gladness with regularity. If it's not, that's actually a blinking light on the dashboard of our lives that something is off in our hearts, that something is off in our perception. Because who has better reason to be glad, to be happy, than we who have been saved, who are being saved by God himself? Can you imagine singing Joy to the World with like a dirgy, melancholy tune? Some bands have tried it. It's terrible. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the lyrics of that song. Or could you imagine the people of Israel singing and reciting Psalm 98 in a voice like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Like, you, you, it's awful. It just would not fit. The joy, the joy, the true and based on identity must work its way outward into expressions of happiness, or really, it's not joy at all. So maintain the distinction, but don't sever this inseparable connection between them. That's what joy is. Second, who should have joy and why? Who should have joy and why? Woven throughout Psalm 98, uh, we hear three different groups called to sing, called to shout, to resound with joy. Who are they? Israel, all nations, and all creation. Israel, all nations, and all creations. Why should each of these groups have joy? Well, first, Israel. Beginning with Abraham, God chose a people for himself. And the Old Testament, from the end of Genesis chapter 11 all the way through, traces their story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel that come from those descendants. It's the the people of this family. It's these people who are being called to joy in this psalm. Why is that? Because God has done marvelous things. He has made known his salvation. Verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. It's not exactly clear what event or events the psalmist is referring to here. Uh, the classic event of the Old Testament is the deliverance of slit from slavery after 400 years in Egypt, the Exodus. And these first few verses of Psalm 98, they actually sound a lot like what's known as the Song of Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 15. That with God's own strong hand, with God's own mighty arm, without Israel needing to do a thing, God brought salvation and victory over their enemies. But Psalm 98 also sounds a lot like the end of Isaiah, when the prophet is talking about Israel's future deliverance from Babylon. And so many scholars think that Psalm 98 is a reference to that. Again, Israel did not fight for their own deliverance in that case. God moved the hearts of kings. He worked within the geopolitical world so that his people would be set free from their exile and return to their homeland. So joy is for Israel. Why? Because God remembers. As John Calvin once wrote, the word remember in Psalm 98 is used in accommodation to man's apprehension. For what has been long suspended seems to have been forgotten. What has been long suspended seems to have been forgotten. In other words, the longer, and we know this, do we not? The longer that we wait The longer that we wait for God to answer our prayers, the longer we wait for anything, the more we fear that God is forgotten. 
And so when God remembered and when he delivered his people after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, when he remembered them after 150 years in Babylon, this is joy for Israel. But not only Israel, it's also for all nations. Though God chose a particular people for himself, his purpose in doing so from the very beginning was to bless all nations of the earth through them. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and to your kindred, to your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the key line. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. This is why Psalm, in Psalm 98, joy is not just for Israel, but for all nations. Verse 2, God has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of who? All nations. Verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. There were little glimpses of the fulfillment of Genesis 12 throughout the Old Testament. But ultimately, this blessing for all peoples is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the descendant of, of Abraham. He is the king in David's line who brings light to the nations, to the Gentiles, those who are not part of that biological family of Abraham, not part of that nation of Israel. Jesus, we read in the New Testament, makes one new people out of the many. He tears down the dividing walls of hostility that once separated us. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians 3, in Jesus there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to write just after that, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Incredible. You, though not biological offspring of Abraham in Jesus, are counted as his offspring, are included into those promises and covenants God made with him. And so writing 1,700 years after this fulfillment, this is why Isaac Watts interprets Psalm 98 through the lenses of Jesus. Joy to who, Isaac Watts writes? Joy to the world. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has come. Let every heart prepare him room. Jesus rules the world, the fourth stanza, with truth and grace. He makes all of the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Let us never forget this, friends. We who are not biological descendants of Abraham were once, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, alienated from God, strangers to God's covenants and promises, and without hope and without God in the world. But now, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So it's joy to all nations because in Jesus the covenants and the promises and the hope, and not only all of those benefits, but even more importantly, God himself is ours. But it's not only joy for Israel. It's not only joy for all nations. Joy is also for all of creation itself. Did you hear that in Psalm 98? Did you hear that in the lyrics of the song, Joy to the World? In Psalm 98, the material creation joins in this praise of God. So people of all nations are playing instruments, they're shouting. And then in verse 6, the sea roars and the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy. 
This is the scope of God's salvation. God didn't just, in the beginning, create people. He created all things, and, and all his creation, we read in the book of Genesis, was good. But since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, all of creation, all of this material world, has felt the fracture of our sin. And that was a direct consequence. That was a curse proclaimed by God because of our rebellion against him. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 8, and he writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We are prone in more theologically conservative Western mentalities to miss this massive theme that exists in Scripture. Humanity was the pinnacle of God's creation, not the totality of it. Likewise, though humanity is at the center of God's saving work, and humanity is at the center of it, We are not the sum of God's saving work. When Jesus actually takes on flesh this whole season of the incarnation and he enters into the physical and material world that was originally good but that has been corrupted by sin, what happens? Well, creation itself rejoices. Creation itself is invited into the joy because its salvation is coming too. Not only ours, but creation itself. And that's why in Revelation 21, Jesus proclaims not only the full and final salvation of his people, praise God, but he says, I am making all things new. All things new. And Isaac Watts is all over this in Joy to the World. You think Greta Thunberg had like a corner on the market of this. Watts is all over this 300 years ago. Let heaven and nature sing. Fields, floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And then verse 3, the whole stanza. No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. The curse of Genesis 3, right? Jesus comes to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. Think about that. Whatever sin has touched, which is everything, whatever sin has corrupted, which is everything, The salvation of God means Jesus will undo this, that Jesus will bless in these places where there has been curse, that Jesus will make these things new. The month that we take each year in January to focus on mercy and justice issues, that is an implication very much of this. Because as Christians, our scope of work in this world is not limited to spiritual work, the the spiritual work of sharing the gospel and compelling other people to believe and to follow Jesus. That is an essential part of our work. That's a central part of what we are called to do as the people of God. But it is not all of it. The curse of sin permeates everything, spiritual and physical, because Jesus' redemption and salvation is the same scope. As his people, we labor to be part of his blessings flowing as far as the curse is found. So we've considered what joy is. We've considered who should have it and why. Lastly, 
How do we get joy? How do we get it? And if we take the whole counsel of God in Scripture into account, the answer to this question is actually twofold. How do we get joy? Here's the Bible's answer. You already have it. Now go get it. You already have it. Now go and get it. As a Christian, as one who trusts Jesus and his finished work and is thereby caught up into the salvation of God, this joy is already yours. It's already yours. Remember, joy is not rooted in circumstances. It's rooted in identity and truth. It's rooted in God reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. And by faith, you and I get to be part of that. Moreover, we've been given his Holy Spirit. We have joy as a fruit of that spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5. But on another level, as Tim Keller writes, all the benefits of Christ's salvation that have been objectively secured for us must be personally appropriated for daily life. You hear those two phrases in there? Objectively secured, personally appropriated. There's what's been objectively secured by Jesus, but we have to own that. We have to step into that. We, we need to pursue experiencing the truth that we believe and that we proclaim. Theologians sometimes describe this as the difference between the positional and the experiential. So positionally, because my identity in Jesus, because of the, the true story of the world, I already have joy. But as my family, especially and other people who know me well will attest, experientially, I may or may not have it today. On any given day, in any given moment of any given day, I may or may not feel joy at all. So how do we bridge this gap between what's been objectively secured and personally appropriating that? How do we gain, in other words, a feeling sense of this joy? And I'll offer you two answers this morning that are by no means comprehensive, but that I do believe are central and part of God's means to us. And they are prayer and singing. Prayer and singing. It sounds really simple, I know. But there is a reason that God's people have done these two things when they've gathered for worship for generations. There's a reason that God's people have done these things in their own personal rhythms of worship for generations. These are God-given means to take the truth that we know about God in our minds and to work them deeply into our hearts. To move from this head knowledge of, I have joy, to a heart-level expression of, I have joy. I have it. It's there. I feel it. Prayer is conversation with God. And we're looking to do a series on prayer after Easter in the coming year. Really already looking forward to that. But prayer is conversation with God. It, it actually is the restoration of communication that humanity had with God in the garden before sin corrupted that and severed that. So to pray, as we are able to because of the work of Jesus, to pray is to actually pour fuel on the fire of our relationship with God. Tim Keller wrote a whole book on prayer. He goes on to write in his book, prayer is the way that truth is worked into your hearts to create new instincts, reflexes, and dispositions. So if you find the experience of joy lacking in your life, which we all will at certain times, when you do, pray for joy. Pray for joy. Sit with texts like this one, like Psalm 98, and meditate on all the reasons objectively you have for joy, the scope 
of who is invited into joy and that you are caught up into this massive cosmic salvation that God is working. If you don't have words to pray, if your heart is so not joyful in a given moment, you lack the words to pray, these are great words to pray. St. Augustine called the Psalms the school of prayer. There's 150 sets of words to pray when you don't have any yourself. And in a way that simply reading or even studying Scripture doesn't, when you pray the truths of Scripture, it will forge this pathway from your head to your heart. It will forge this connection between the positional and the experiential. It will work joy into your soul so that you might then live out of that joy. At the same time, sing. Sing. It's an appropriate point, right, for being in a series about Christmas carols. A little ulterior motive there to get you to sing along with the songs that we're singing this, this season. But how does Psalm 98 start? Oh, sing. Sing to the Lord. Sing a new song. And a new song may or may not be one that's just been freshly written. What the psalmist is saying, and this is a phrase actually all over the psalms and even outside the psalms, is that we should sing in response to and as an expression of a fresh taste of the grace of God. We should sing as an experience of, as a response to a fresh glimpse of his love, of his grace. And I'm grateful that in this church, our liturgists each week welcome us in, to begin our service by welcoming us in, regardless of what our weeks have looked like regardless of if we're coming in with a happy heart or with a really heavy one. Either way, you are invited each week when you come to worship here to sing with joy. Psalm 98 is actually more direct than our liturgists are. God, via the psalmist, doesn't just invite us, he commands us to sing with joy. Why does he do that? Because not only is this song true, but like prayer, even when you don't, Feel it, singing forges the path from head to heart. Harold Best, who was a longtime dean of music at Wheaton College, he says that by commanding us to sing, God takes the vaguest form of communicating truth, which is music, right? A very vague form of communicating truth, and combines it with the most precise way of communicating truth, which is words, so that, as Harold Best puts it, we might feel the truth. So that we might feel the truth. And as I say all of this, I'm not talking about being phony or like faking it till you make it. One of the biggest put-offs for those who are not Christians is when Christians come across as inauthentic, always smiling, zippity-doo-dah, whistling people that just don't deal in reality, right? Is that not a put-off for people that aren't Christians? They're like, who are these ridiculous people who refuse to deal in reality? Don't be phony. Do take hold of the real joy that's objectively there. Don't fake it till you make it. Sing because it's true and sing because joy is already yours and then in your singing, see if God does not work powerfully in your heart as he has done with generations of men and women of faith before you to actually forge that connection to make you feel the truth. Friends, in Jesus, joy is already yours. It is inseparable from your identity and from the true story of the world. And so go and get it. Go get it. In your prayers, in your singing, fight for that fresh taste of the grace of God, for that fresh glimpse of all that Jesus has won.
your salvation, the redemption of creation itself, the end of the curse and blessings as far as the curse was found. And when we close our service singing this song in just a few minutes, whatever your circumstances are today, and I know that for some of you they are impossible and they are so weighty. Whatever they are, whether you feel joy in your heart or not this morning, lift your voice and sing. Lift your voice and sing, and as you do, may you see again the salvation of our God. May you taste again of his grace. May you feel the joy that is already yours in Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. With joy, truly, we praise you, gracious God, for you have created heaven and earth. You have made us in your image. You have kept covenant with us, even when we fell into sin. We rejoice this morning, and we ask you to help us rejoice this morning in Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose coming opened the way of salvation and whose triumphant return we eagerly await. And therefore, we now join our voices with all the saints and the angels and all of creation to proclaim the glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.